So my name is uh, Justin Shireman. I'm a partner at the Boston Wilson Elser office. Um, I am one of the co-chairs of the product section. Um, and um, I actually co-chair that with Jackie uh, Dave Grand Prix of Green, Greenberg Targ. She's also in uh, Greenberg's Boston office. Uh, unfortunately, she cannot attend today. Um, so, but I did want to acknowledge, acknowledge her. Um, this presentation is, is going to be on, or is titled, Reliable and Relevant Preparing and Challenging Expert Evidence. Um, and it, it ties, the, the overall theme of this presentation ties to the amendment to Rule 702 of the Federal Rules of Evidence and its impact in federal litigation, but also Massachusetts um, litigation, um, as we all know that the in the Lonergan decision, uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court um, essentially adopted the Daubert standard. Um, to assist me in this, uh, this presentation today is a, a colleague of mine, David Ross. He's a partner in Wilson Elser's Washington DC office. Um, David and I worked very um, closely on a case that um, will serve as the hypothetical that we present today, um, and one in which we were very successful and shows both the, um, the dangers and um, as well as, uh, I, let's just say provides insight in how uh, both sides, the plaintiff's bar and the defense bar should address um, expert evidence. Um, thank you, Dave. I don't know if you have any opening words to share. Just want to thank you for the opportunity to attend. As you, Justin, mentioned, I'm David Ross. I'm a partner of Justin's in our Washington, D.C. office. I co-chair Wilson Elster's National Class Action Practice Team, and I co-chair our firm's commercial litigation group. So it's a pleasure to be here and, and do this presentation with Justin. Thank you, Dan. Um, so this first slide is our agenda. Um, we are going to start, um, well, we've already introduced our panelists um, <laughs> today, but um, we're gonna we're gonna have a quick discussion about the new, and I put this in parentheses, and I'll explain that why, explain why shortly. The federal rule of evidence seven hundred two. Um, we'll present our hypothetical case, products case. Um, I, I'd like to note that you know this is if you're attending this, you probably knew this was being presented as part of the product liability section, um, and 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 if you have a products case, if you have a PL case. More likely than not, you're going to have you're going to have experts involved. Um, so this is based on the assumption that you're going to have an expert. Um, and so the next steps, as we'll go through, as you see through the agenda, is determining what type of expert you need. Um, why, you know, when do you need an expert? Um, what tasks are you going to have the expert do? Are is inspections and testing necessary in your case? When should those be done? Um, you know, preparing and um, preparing expert disclosures and reports, preparing for deposition, preparing for trial testimony, preparing to take the deposition of the other side's expert, you know, in preparation, for instance, uh, for a Daubert Lonergan motion and a motion for summary judgment prior to trial. And then we'll have set, uh, some time for a wrap up and, and questions. Um, keep in mind that we're going to be looking at all of these topics through the lens of, again, this quote-unquote new 
Rule 702. So the new Rule 702, the reason why new is in, is in parentheses, not in parentheses, in quotation marks, sorry, um, is that it's really not a new, it's, the rule is not new. There, and it's not even actually an, a, an official rule yet. We're still waiting on the, Supreme, the US Supreme Court to adopt the proposed amendments that, to Rule 702 that have been around for a long time. Um, and I'm gonna provide the rule, the proposed Rule 702, and you'll see where the amendments are underlined and in bold. These are not, again, this is not really a new rule as, as it's more of a clarification of what Rule 702, um, how it's supposed to be interpret, interpreted. So again, there's no real substantive change. So you'll see that the first change is the addition to of the proponent demonstrates to the court that it is more likely than not that. This first, um, this first clarification to the rule is that the standard for admissible evidence testimony is a preponderance of the evidence standard for all four elements of the rule. It was understood, or at least was initially understood when you had the seven, Rule 702 amendments um, in I believe 2001 or late 19, 1990s that the courts would apply the preponderance of the evidence rule. Uh, the cool, there, the court, not all courts have done so. And so, um, in, in doing so, and for instance, some courts have applied a much more liberal reading of the admissibility um, standard in allowing, um, it's actually, I believe, called the liberal approach of allowing um, in performing the analysis necessary to determine whether or not expert opinion is admissible. So this addition to the rule is to clarify that the standard of review is a preponderance of the evidence. There's also the addition or- yeah, Justin, I, I can chime in on that too. I mean, absolutely. The courts were all over the place. There was a great deal of splits among the courts. And indeed, here's what a, here's what a Southern District of New York said in one case in 2020. The court's role as a gatekeeper is tempered by the liberal thrust of the federal rules of evidence and the presumption of admissibility. And the, that same court also said under D'Albert, expert testimony should be excluded only if it is speculative or conjectural or based on assumptions that are so unrealistic or contradictory as to suggest bad faith. So in other words, courts like that were simply just reading out any type of reliability assessment and just to simply taking a, a very liberal approach and saying, well, we're not really a gatekeeper, we're just more of a conduit. And indeed the jury can make all these assessments instead of the court. Yeah, and so, um, and, and David just mentioned the key, the key word here, uh, gatekeeper. Um, these, this liberal thrust, liberal kind of interpretation, allowing evidence in, uh, a real focus on the weight of the evidence that the, 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 the jury has the ability to look to the credibility of the expert and weigh the weight of the evidence was allowing a lot of, um, what was not maybe intended evidence to get in, in 
um, or be found admissible that, you know, that the rule as originally drafted, as amended actually in, like I said, in the early 2000s, late 1990s, uh, that it wasn't intended to do. Um, and, and that idea of the gatekeeper is also emphasized with the additional change or the, the change kind of in the language from the expert has reliably applied to the expert opinion reflects a reliable application of the principles and methods to the facts of the case. This is going to, this emphasize again, that the court is going to do the analysis to as the gatekeeper to determine if it's reliable and your expert is going to have to reliably apply the principles um, to in developing the opinion that you may want as plaintiff or defendant in the case. Um, so um, do you have any more to add on that, Dave? Yeah, I can tell you, and yet another court in Texas said that as a general rule, questions relating to the basis and sources of an expert opinion affect the weight to be assigned that opinion rather than its admissibility and should be left for the jury's consideration. Not at all what they had in mind. And that's why if you look at the committee notes for these proposed changes, the, the committee notes themselves reflect at, at the outset that this is indeed a problem to be addressed. They, they start First, the rule has been amended to clarify and emphasize that expert testimony may not be admitted unless the proponent, the one bringing this expert testimony, demonstrates to the court. So you have to make a threshold demonstration to the court that it is more likely than not, in other words, a preponderance of the evidence, that the proffered testimony meets the admissibility requirements set forth in Rule 702. But, and here's, so the committee recognizes, but many courts have held that the critical questions of the sufficiency of an expert's basis and the application of the expert's methodology are questions of weight and not admissibility. These rulings are inconsistent. They're incorrect application of Rule 702 and Rule 104. So the committee at the outset recognized courts were simply getting it wrong. And the intent of the rulemaking simply wasn't being met in its application. Therefore, these necessitated these rule changes. Yeah, and and in this proponents of the evidence standard that the, the court will apply, should be applying as the gatekeeper, will apply to the four factors there, which is the expert, scientific, technical, or other specialized, specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact and issue that the testimony is based on sufficient facts or data. The testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods. And again, the, re the reliable application change that we, we've spoken to. So the idea here is that in order to, in order to get expert evidence in, you're going to have to prove more likely than not that your expert is qualified to offer the opinions that they're offering, that those opinions are relevant and that they are based on a reliable application, that they're based on actual fact, they're not based on conjecture, um, they're, they're based on reliable principles and methods, right? So have you, done have you conducted some testing um, to show this, or is that testing that you've done a, um, recognized within the science? Um, these are all factors that the, court's gonna, the court is going to consider 
um, as the gatekeeper and you as the proponent of that expert opinion, expert testimony need to establish more by, by more likely than not is reliable is and that expert is qualified and relevant to your case. And, and one cautionary tale that, that everyone should keep in mind, while Rule 702, particularly as amended, highlights what should have already been an existing gatekeeper functionality for the court to perform, the comments to Rule 702, to the changes, say this, nor does the rule require that the court make a finding of reliability in the absence of objection. It's going to be very significant that we simply not take it for granted the court's going to perform this gatekeeping function. It is our obligation as advocates for our clients that we raise the court's need to serve as a gatekeeper. We can't simply assume that the court de facto is going to perform that, and the comments make that very clear. So again, one of the things to keep in mind is we need to keep very, very close analysis of what our adversaries experts say, how they say it, what they rely on, and make sure we timely raise appropriate objections in the proper form. It's something, and if anything else, it just highlights the need to do that because you have better language in Rule 702 and some better court decisions interpreting and applying Rule 702 that you can rely on in challenging experts, but you have to make sure you raise the issue to begin with. You can't assume the court's going to do that. Yeah. So to better assist us in kind of working through, um, again, uh, not, you know, I want to emphasize, these aren't really changes. This is a clarification of the rule that should be being applied. Um, and, and, you know, it's important because, in the cases that uh, Dave and I have worked at, we we kind of pushed the issue, right? Um, we didn't just assume that the court was going to um, apply maybe the liberal thrust issue or rely on language because we know our opponent did that, you know, these issues all go to the weight of the evidence and therefore a jury issue. We we pressed the issue. We, we, we pointed to the amendments to the rule, the comments, um, other case law and 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 you do your your um, your client a, dis, a disfavor if you don't if you don't press the issue and hold the court to its role as the gatekeeper, right? We all file motions eliminating for trial on a number of issues, right? Because those are the issues that the court is going to look at those evidentiary questions. This is just as important an evidentiary question, even though. It may be you may your deadlines may have you filing your Daubert motion, your Lonergan motion much earlier in the case. Um, you're typically doing that with your motion for summary judgment. So the hypothetical, in any case, uh, kind of we we thought it best that it would it would it would be most helpful if we um, threw a hypothetical out there um, from the very beginning, a hypothetical fact pattern, and then work through kind of the expert issues. Um, that you need to consider from even in pre even pre suit, um, in order to ensure, you know, plaintiffs bar, you know, even if you're on the plaintiff side or on the defense side, making sure that your experts get get in, that you're going to be able to offer your expert testimony at trial, and if you're on the other side, the steps that you could take to, you know, maybe 
win on summary judgment if you can get their expert precluded. If they don't, you know, that expert doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So our, our hypothetical here is involves a motorcycle. It's a motorcycle accident. A, uh, a, the rider um, gets on the highway. Um, something happens and that rider proceeds across the median and it strikes another car or strikes a car head on, resulting in death. A few months later, after the accident, um, the manufacturer of the motorcycle um, issues a recall related to um, the throttle system on the, mo on the motorcycle. Um, there's no, there was no clear, there's no clear evidence. There really, there were eyewitnesses to the accident, but there was no, um, no real clear evidence as to what happened with the rider or the motorcycle. So, the, the widow of the rider, the deceased rider, receives the recall. She comes to plaintiff's counsel and says, I might have a case. So in that case, um, Dave, your plaintiff's counsel, you have a, a widow come to you with a recall that she just received in the mail. Um, you, you are aware that the motorcycle has been um, retained by the insurer, the insurance company. Um, what do you do? What's your what's your first step? Certainly, well, certainly step one is going to be uh, to, to assess the legitimacy of the claim to do some preliminary investigation. Uh, the second step is going to be make sure I issue immediately a preservation demand, making sure because the linchpin is going to be, of course, the motor, the product, the motorcycle itself. And on the topic of experts, I'm going to line up an expert very early on. I'm going to make sure I have some expertise with regard to, A, the product itself, the, the motorcycle, uh, uh, B, an assessment of any other potential recalls or other issues impacting the same model and make of motorcycle. And then, of course, I'm, I want to assess the accident itself, what possibly could have taken place, how do I reconstruct it? And then, of course, I want to assess the damages. You heard wrongful death. You heard accident. I want to make sure I can monetize, as a plaintiff's attorney, the pain and suffering not only incurred by the rider in the moments before he was unfortunately deceased, but, of course, the surviving family members as well. And, of course, whatever his income was, whatever the impact on the family is. So I want to do several multifaceted areas of retention. I want to make sure I cover the product. I want to make sure I cover the recall and potential issues involving the recall itself, knowing I'm gonna get an assertion that these are subsequent radial measures and they're gonna to try to exclude that. I wanna make sure I address that right up front, maybe have somebody who knows some knowledge and background with NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Well, make sure I get that lined up. And then of course, about the accident itself. And then of course, about pain and suffering, medical, et cetera. Thanks, Dave. Um, so, Going back to the, the question that's on the screen, when do you need an expert or when do you when should you be considering an expert in this type of case? Right at the outset. Right. Um, and so now, you know, you've done those determinations, you've preserved the motorcycle, maybe you've looked into preserving any other, the vehicle that was involved in the crash. Um, you've, you made an assessment that there's a viable claim here you know, worth claim, a claim worth looking at, you send a claim letter to the manufacturer. 
manufacturer, you re receives the claim. Does the manufacturer start considering experts at this time? They, they most certainly should. And as an aside, as a as a as a plaintiff's attorney who's aggressive, I'm not only going to send a, a letter to the manufacturer to the extent I can figure out who distributed the motorcycle, where the motorcycle was sold. I'm going to send demands to any and all, but certainly to the manufacturer in and of itself. But on the on the other side, on the manufacturer side, absolutely, you need to make sure that you're in a position to assess the potential ramifications. Is this a potential individual case that could indeed devolve into a class action? Have I received other notifications of potential issues? I mean, obviously a recall so resulted. So there are obviously some issues here, but does the recall itself and does the potential impact that necessitated the recall, does it tie in with what's alleged here? How, how far is it? What what makes and models as an impact? What's my temporal scope? How far back does it go? I want to make sure that I have somebody lined up in the engineering field, someone who knows this product. I want to make sure that I get exemplars to the extent this motorcycle is no longer in a condition that we can perform testing on it. We can do an inspection that will result in us determining the potential causes of the accident or ruling out causes because the motorcycle may be too badly damaged. I want to make sure I get exemplars of this motorcycle lined up. I want to make sure I get experts who can proceed to indeed engage in an accident reconstruction. And of course, maybe not right at the first, but if eventually you're going to need somebody to also get involved in the economics of damages part. But at the outset, our definite needs are going to be engineering, product expertise, and someone who can attend the motorcycle inspection itself, if we can get that lined up very quickly, which we typically do early on in a case. And then of course, to then perform the accident reconstruction. So definitely those core experts that go to liability and the product itself. And then of course, as we talked about, you may need somebody involved at the early outset who knows something about recalls, NHTSA, who has a government background, knowing what the impact of the recall might be. You can't just simply assume that you're going to succeed in getting any and all inferences or negative indications of the later recall excluded because it does have a direct tie in here. Right, and so, and while not entirely related and while relating to other parts of the case, um, on that side, you're going to make efforts with your client to preserve documents, preserve, for instance, there, there's documentation re regarding the the issuance of the recall right internal investigations internal communications you're going to have design documents you're going to that are related you're going to have manufacturing documents um you're going to have warranty claims maybe right you're going to have you're going to have records related to customer complaints there is in this instance you know where there's a recall there's a reason why a recall was issued um and so you're going to have to get all those documents now you 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 have an obligation, right? Your client has an obligation because it's reasonable expectation that this claim is going to go to trial. There's also obligations, um, you know, in the context of of a, of a recall that you know NHTSA has requirements for retention of, of materials and documents and 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 different um, information. So you have those obligations. But in the context of experts, your experts are going to have to rely on certain documents. They're going to they're gonna have to rely on all that information. Um, you're going to want to preserve that because you're ultimately wanting, going to want to share that with your, your, your expert because 
that that's going to form the basis or part of the basis of their opinion. On the plaintiff's side, you have to think about those documents as well. And, and so you may be already thinking about the documents that you're going to have to request um, from the other side. It's also a lot easier, for instance, in the case um, to prove your case, if you can, uh, and we've already touched this, but you can get your hands on, on the motorcycle or, or the, the defective part. You know, sometimes the, the product disappears. I have a case currently now that the product disappeared and then we found it, <laughs> you know, three years later. And now we're, you know, we're, we're having to take the consideration in the testing of that material by experts on both sides because it has been modified since, you know, the accident and has been in other hands. So these are all things that you really need to consider at the, at the get-go. Um, and, and in considering those issues, the issues as to the claims, the defenses, it goes into strongly as to what type of experts you need, right? You need those on the technical end and on the damages end as, as Dave expressed. Right, and then that you raised a good point about the preservation and the need to get a hold of the documents and information that are available. So for example, like here, someone sold this motorcycle to the rider. It may have been a local dealership, may not have robust document retention protocols in place. You wanna make sure if you're the manufacturer or you're on the plaintiff side, you want to make sure you have access to those documents and they don't inadvertently uh, get destroyed or just in the normal cycle of retention or the normal practice. So immediately, I want to reach out to that local dealer. Make sure you preserve, to the extent, emails. Do you have any email traffic with this individual? Or if there's a, there's a prior owner, all maintenance records, sale records. Did you do an inspection of the motorcycle before you sold it to this individual? What did it sow? So you want to make sure you line all that up. Don't assume you can do it later on. Early on is important. The other, the other thing, too, is your, um, when you're considering these issues, you know, your client might not might be a sophisticated um, manufacturer distributor, um, but they might they might not be sophisticated at all in the law, and they might not be thinking of documents or information or that that needs to be gathered or collected um, as the part of as the part of the defense or of the case. You may not think of it either because your your background is as an attorney. If you get your experts on in early in the case, they're going to tell you what they need, and what they need may not be something that you've already thought of. So, getting a case, getting a, your experts in as early as possible will help you in that your investigation and getting everything that they're going to need down the road for for their opinions. And for the plaintiff side, it's the same thing. You get an expert in early; they're going to tell you. They may tell you what they're going to need and what to request um, once you get to um, discovery from the other side, or at the very least, a nice strongly worded preservation letter preserving documents that you know could have slipped away, you know, um, innocent, innocently, right? Might might have slipped through the the you know, your the defense's own internal preservation instructions. So. It really is important to um, get those experts in so they can help guide you on the technical um, side of, of a case. So inspections and testing. Um, 
why are these important, Dave? Why are they important in uh, for making sure that your your expert survives a 702 challenge? Yeah, and, and that, that's what makes sometimes these product cases a little unique because those of us who do litigation might sometimes think, well, you don't really know who the other side's experts even are until later in the case. The disclosure obligations don't, right? You know, our, our standard discovery response, we have not yet determined who we're going to, we'll supplement at the appropriate time. Well, that's a little different in these types of cases. Good luck proceeding if your expert does not attend the inspection. And typically the inspection will happen at the front end of these cases because you need it to. A, you want to make sure the product doesn't potentially get further deteriorated or potentially have a chain of custody issue. You want to make sure the inspection, the testing gets done at the outset. And so the good news is the other side knows who the key or core liability experts are going to be for the other side because they should all be attending the inspection and the testing. And you have to perform that early on. And, and when you do it, by the way, it's not you can't exactly exclude the other side. Everyone gets the opportunity to attend. You want to make sure you agree on the protocols in advance. And, that and there's nothing hidden there. I mean, you want to, everything's going to be in the open there because you want to make sure there's a reliability of it. You, want, you don't want to run into later accusations. You performed the inspection or somehow did something to impair the reliability, to somehow impair the actual product that's up here, the motorcycle. So inspection and testing is, is imperative both sides. For example, if you're on the plaintiff side, how, do you, how are you going to prove, yeah, you had a recall later on, but the recall might have just been a general recall that sent, the, you know, it's prophylactic. You send it out to the entire universe here, even though you know only a certain subset of motorcycles might actually be impacted by that. And even if you're impacted, the result of that impact may not be something that could lead to, for example, the accident here. It's imperative at the outset you have your experts attend the inspection so you can make an ass assessment, one, what kind of condition is the motorcycle even in? But two, what kind of testing can you do on the motorcycle? Three, what does the motorcycle even show? Where's the damage? What condition is it in? What's missing from the actual motorcycle? What kind of testing on site can you do in order to test and see if the recall condition presents itself or is precluded from presenting itself on the motorcycle? And so it's imperative all experts who are going to be involved and the inspection, the accident reconstruction process attend for both sides. And you want that early on, not to mention that kind of helps you guide how you want to conduct your case. If yeah. I want to inspect the actual motorcycle, how do I know what, what the next steps are going to be? Right. And, and going back to our hypothetical, because you, you brought it up and, you know, when I get too far upstream. Um, so in our hypothetical, we have a recall, right? Um, there's, you know, there's no clear evidence from the eyewitnesses that the recall scenario here in this case in our in our um, hypothetical that there was a the possibility that a um, uh, a throttle um, would slowly return based on 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 an issue with the bike and and so that couldn't be determined by eyewitness testimony and it couldn't be it can't be determined during the uh, the ins the visual inspection. Um, you know, you, you, you know, it was a head-on collision. The bike is not in great shape. The, the, uh, the, the throttle is, you know, the handlebars are, were destroyed. Um, so was the throttle. Um, so, you know, you open it, it closes, um, snap shut. So, 
if you're the plaintiff, you're going to try to, you're trying to say that this defect that could have been found in, in a recall caused the accident, right? And, and this is one of the, sometimes the misconception um, amongst parties is that a recall, for instance, means that that individual product at issue was defective. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Um, it just means that there was a there was an issue that needed to be corrected, and maybe they found it in a few, and it only happened. You know that that scenario that was envisioned and to be corrected by the recall only happened in a few. It doesn't mean this motorcycle was the subject of the recall. So when you have you conduct that inspection and and you don't determine, there's no determination whether the recall was occurred or not, or the scenario envisioned by the recall um, occurred, or that basically required the recall occurred, um, what do you have to do? I mean, how does plaintiff prove their case? What, um, what, what will the expert have to do, Dave? I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly as part of the inspection process, if he can't, if the motorcycle is too heavily damaged, but the one thing that has to be important for you is to say, well, you can't rule it out, right? All the conditions are here, certainly nothing that could be found on the motorcycle. We, we did, uh, we, we took pictures of the motorcycle. We took measurements of the motorcycle. We try to replicate certain conditions of the motorcycle. We couldn't do so or were able to do so may or may not be material to the particular aspects of your case here. We did an inventory of what was there, what was missing. So I'm able to set all the parameters to lay a foundation. Nothing here can be ruled out that indeed this motorcycle was subject to the condition that led to the recall and that could have indeed caused a condition that led to the accident. In fact, all, all that we can tell from the motorcycles, it's perfectly consistent with a recall existing. And then what I need to do, of course, if I can't get all that information from the subject motorcycle, if I'm going to be a smart plaintiff's attorney, I've got to invest some here. I've got to get myself an exemplar motorcycle. And then, of course, do some actual testing of that motorcycle in conditions that essentially, as best as I could, replicate the accident conditions. So that would lead me to do that. If, you, if I could perform those exact conditions on this particular motorcycle well that would allay some of the issues i wouldn't have to get an exemplar necessarily but the inspection is imperative to do that i need to know what i'm working with here i can't rely on this particular motorcycle it's too heavily damaged i need to be on a position to say i attended the inspection here are all my copious notes here are the pictures from it here are the measurements from it here's what's there what's missing here are the conclusions that can be drawn i can't like and here's the next step i need to make sure i get an exemplar to the extent available of this, I need to get an exemplar of the specific parts at issue here, and I need to perform testing on my own to show that the recall condition could well have manifested itself and could well have manifested itself by leading to the accident. So, Dave, would you say that part of this in making this determination as to what testing, if testing, and what testing needs to be done, would it, would it, is an important going back to the original question of, or I guess the second question was, what expert do I need? Or which experts do I need? Um, is it important to have that? I mean, to have, to have, let's give you an example. If the expert you retained using the scenario is a expert who has experience in sudden acceleration and involving automobiles, 
is that the best expert that you could get? If, that is, of issue? <laughs> if that's the only expert available, potentially, uh, but highly likely, I would want to find an actual expert in a different type of vehicle, namely a motorcycle. I want to have apples to apples comparison. I don't want to lend myself to defense bringing a motion saying, yeah, this expert's all well and good if this involved, you know, you know a Ford Mustang. Well, it doesn't. It, it involves a, a motorcycle and motorcycles operate very, very differently. And in fact, the acceleration process and the throttle conditions are ex are completely different from a motorcycle. So I want to find someone who has expertise in the motorcycle area and actually can, can testify on an expertise with motorcycles itself and not just say, well, I have a vehicle background. Good luck. I mean, you, you, if that's all you have, maybe, but you're really going to run into a, an issue, particularly with Rule 702, as it's being amended with this heightened emphasis on what should already have been there, these reliability standards. If you don't have somebody in the field, and, and by in the field, I mean the specific subject matter area, you make it more and more difficult for you to be able to satisfy your burden to show that everything that you're giving to the court for an expert is going to be reliable. Right. And 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 it just puts more emphasis on if this is an expert who isn't, say, motorcycle specific or a motorcycle engineer, it's going to put more emphasis on the testing that it was done um, to establish or form the foundation for the opinions that they offer that they offer. We find um, experts on both sides, plaintiffs and and defense side that often work backwards. Um, I think sometimes they want to they want to get retained. They want to get hired by us and they're going to give us the opinion that we want to hear. Um, we have to be careful in ensuring that while we're we're hearing the opinion that we want to support our case, that that expert is doing everything that needs to be done, often in the form of testing that will establish that opinion that 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 opinion was based on a re reliable application of you know of of the principles, um, you know, whatever science that's being used, whatever technical background. Um, you know, going back to our scenario, if we have a recall that speaks to a a throttle that is slow to return, right? Not stuck, not jammed, right? But one that's slow to return when that scenario arises. But then our expert's opinion is saying that what occurred was a stuck throttle, right? A jammed throttle that didn't return. Well, that scenario is not what was covered by the recall. So if you're going to have the basis of your opinion that this is, or your expert's opinion that this is what happened in this scenario, that expert's going to have to do the testing to establish that that scenario could happen. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, you're dealing maybe not apples and oranges, but maybe you know you're dealing with a certain type of apple with the the jam throttle opinion and another type of apple with respect to the you know the sticking slow to return throttle. They're not the same scenario, and so we have to you have to be careful. I mean, that judges are going to say, look. This is what this recall said. Uh, you know, it's not clear at this point that it, that's going to even be admissible because it's a subsequent remedial measure. It's not. It shouldn't be admissible for the purposes of proving liability. But you've also your expert is saying one thing that's different from the other. They haven't conducted testing, or 
They have conducted testing and they have established that this scenario is possible, right? And so then maybe if you're on the plaintiff side, maybe you have a better shot of trying to get um, you know, other incidents, similar incidents into the case, that type of evidence, getting the recall in as evidence, even if it's not um, it's precluded um, for the purposes of proving liability, because we all know that if you get something before a jury, um, you can get it before the jury, even if you get an instruction as to what they should consider it for, it's still there and it's still in the jury's mind. So these are all factors that need to be um, considered in there. And look, you're relying on your expert to, to help you. You also need to work with your expert to make sure that what they're doing is going to help, is going to, you're helping them to make sure that their opinions are going to uh, withstand 702 scrutiny. Yeah, and another reason the inspections and testing are important, not just if I'm on the defense side, I want to, I want it to help me develop my defense. I know I'm going to need an expert. I want it, I want an accurate assessment of the potential liability here. If, if the expert comes back and says, yeah, we did the inspection and we did the testing and yeah, the conditions are there. It very well could have manifested itself. It could. I want to hear that bad news up front. I want to know it early on in a case because that may well change my assessment and analysis of how we go forward. I may want to think about resolving this case early on. If I know that there are some bad facts that are going to be developed, they're going to get a, if they have a robust enough expert, they're really going to develop a pretty powerful case for liability. And, and our magnitude of liability could potentially expand. It could lead to other lawsuits. Do I want to get this out in the public arena through disclosures, through court filings? Or do I want to know this? I want to know this early on. Good, bad, ugly. I want to know it all. And having early inspections and testing not only helps me develop a defense, it helps me give an assessment to my client about the potential liability going forward. And, uh, and along those fronts too, if your expert says, look, this scenario wouldn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. You may make the strategic decision to argue in your defense, even though the burden may be on the plaintiff to establish that this scenario could never happen. But yeah. you can't rely on the recall either to, to say that scenario would never happen, right? Because, well, that there there's a whole lot of other issues that related to whether you even want to address that, right? Because by making an argument, maybe you get the recall in before the jury and you don't necessarily want that. But your expert if is going to opine that this scenario can't happen and if that's going to be your defense, they're going to have to do testing as well. They're going to have to get their exemplar, put the bike in the condition, for instance, maybe the worst possible scenario, right, of, of, of the recall scenario and conduct um, exemplar rides. And, yeah, establish that's a good that, point. and establish that this could never have happened, right? Right. That and that's a strategic decision. Sometimes you don't want to do that, right? Because, you know, if you do that testing and you find out that it could happen, well, okay, it's good to know. We might not use that, right, <laughs> at trial. But if, if it turns out it, it, um, that it, the scenario cannot happen, you're going to want to use it. And again, you're going to want to be able to withstand 702 scrutiny to show that this opinion, that this scenario could never have happened, was is reliable it's relevant so. yeah exactly right yeah, yeah. I, I want i want after the inspection of the motorcycle i'm going to bring my experts out to the actual accident scene safety understood make sure we notify local authorities make sure it's safe to visit the accident site given traffic conditions etc 
I want to make sure we document the accident scene. We take measurements of the accident scene. What curvature is there? What's the road conditions? What's the speed limit? What's the ingress, egress? Are there, are there off ramps? Are there stop signs? Are there stop lights? I want to, I want to make sure all that's carefully diagrammed. I want to make sure it's all filmed. It's all carefully documented. And then as you mentioned, I want to make sure if I can do it safely, I want to actually perform exemplar motorcycle rides on the, not just at a test track, which I would want to do likely, actual at the accident scene. And I want to make sure I film it. If, if it's possible, I, I would take rides on the motorcycle, professional motorcycle rider, filming it the entire time and showing the measurements that exist on the motorcycle before and after the ride and actually mirror the ride that that motorcycle rider took, obviously not going across the media, not replicating the actual accident, but obviously riding the same route as the motorcycle rider did the day of the accident, if it's possible to have the motorcycle in the pre-recall condition, in the recall condition, film it at all. That way you have a wealth of knowledge. And, and by the way, make sure it's professionally filmed. Make sure it's something that a court can digest and actually tangibly see. That's helpful from a reliability perspective. And, and if this goes to the jury, the jury can actually see it's professionally done. I can see the relevant measurements. I can see the relevant temperature readings, et cetera, before and after the specific rides. I want to make sure all of that's done because that all helps my reliability. And that goes for both sides, plaintiff side and defense side. Right. And it, and it look, if you can overcome the reliability, um, you know, you can get over 702. You've all, you've accomplished all this um support for your opinions which then goes to the the weight of your opinions your credit your experts credibility and so it it it, it you know it work it's not just to overcome the hump right you don't want to just get make sure that your opinions get in you want to have strong factually supported opinions um i'm going to jump forward um you know interestingly so i have deposition and trial we put deposition and trial testimony in here you also have you know that sudden here is you're going to have report expert reports. You're also going to have expert disclosures. Um, just be, you know, keep be mindful when you're preparing disclosures because in mass, you know, there is no right to expert reports. Um, you can you can do them if you want, if the parties agree, or if you ask for leave from the court. But you're still going to have your your um, your expert disclosures that are going to have to be certified. Um, though, be careful in preparing the having the reports prepared. The, those disclosures prepared, make sure that you provide the analysis, the information that satisfy the rules, but also will establish on their own that the opinions offered in that disclosure, the opinions offered in that report withstand 702 scrutiny. Um, so, you know, again, sometimes expert depositions aren't taken and the court can base can base their opinion on 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 the reports themselves, um, and you know if if you haven't put enough in the report or your expert hasn't put enough in the report to withstand for the court to make a determination that it's reliable, then then you're you're in trouble. Um, you know you don't want to necessarily have to rely on your expert um, presenting well in a a, a Daubert hearing. Um, and the court doesn't necessarily have to conduct one. Um, so, 
Yeah, and, and, and keep in mind, I mean, knowing know your experts and know the other side's experts. And part of that is going to be extensive research on your own experts and your other side's experts. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test Lexus. If, if you're part of a law firm, does your law firm have an internal you know, repository of documents? I'm going to check with colleagues, potentially even other counsel in other cases. I want to find out when have these experts been used in other cases? What's been the outcome? How have their reports been received? How similar are, are the testimony expected to be in this case with another case? I want to make sure I know the landscape. Have they... Have, has their testimony been excluded or limited in other cases? I want to make sure all that homework is done, knowing the importance, the significance that experts play in these types of cases. Make sure all that's done in advance, because I certainly want to package all that together in advance of any deposition, certainly. I want to make sure that I test the veracity and how, how firmly the expert's going to hold to certain opinions, particularly if I can bring up what's been what took place in other cases certain issues or certain weaknesses, you know, to try to undermine the reliability, have the expert second guess himself, qualify what the experts already said. And as an aside, make sure your expert reports are done and they're done right. Make sure these are they're signed. Make sure there's some sort of an attestation, for example, that the expert's gonna testify consistent with the reporter. Know the local rules, the local requirements. Don't run into some sort of a procedural issue, some timing issue. Make sure you package it together appropriately. Yeah. And then when it comes to the deposition itself, you have to be thorough. Don't, don't simply overlook the, the importance of a deposition because you might think, well, the deposition could hurt us. Maybe I don't want to take the deposition. Well, odds are what, what's in the expert report is going to hurt you far worse. And you might be able to get some admissions there, certain testimony that's inconsistent with the report that helps you highlight certain deficiencies in the report. So again, almost certainly you want to take a deposition of an expert. You don't want to just simply overlook it. Yeah, I wanted to add a point too, and, and everyone probably imagines or probably has guessed that the scenario we created today is based on a real case. Um, and in that case uh, in which we were able to preclude um, an expert and, and ultimately win, win the case on summary judgment, which was affirmed you know, um, by one of the circuit courts, uh, one of the arguments that was made by um, the other side was that we didn't offer expert opinion to establish that the opinions of the plaintiff's expert were unreliable. Um, and the court simply threw that argument out. They just, they, it was a, so I just wanna point out, right? It's, it's, um, it's gonna be your burden. It's your burden, the proponents of the evidence establishing that the opinions of your expert, expert are reliable. Um, you can't rely on the other side having to prove that your experts' opinions are unreliable. It's your burden, right? And that's one of the things that is emphasized by the, the clarification of rule, the amendment to rule 702. Yeah, and keep in mind, don't assume if you lose in front of a you know a federal district court, you're going to win on appeal, because the standard of review for the application of Daubert is abuse of discretion. That, that's a very deferential review standard, and it's very difficult to overcome. So you have to make sure you get your best arguments in front of the district court and know that the, the likelihood of being overturned on appeal is not very high. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, uh, so uh, I, we're running out of time. So basically, the, I wanted to emphasize Daubert motions because, um, and motion for motions for summary judgment, in most cases, um, these are filed at the same time. But I think the thing to keep in mind is in a products case, one of the things you should be thinking about is whether or not, at least on the defense side, I can... Um, I can get their experts precluded because if I can get their experts precluded, they can't prove their case. And I went on summary judgment. Now, that doesn't mean it's just the the, the, the defense side. The plaintiff side does it as should be thinking about it as well. Um, though, you know, the focus on the plaintiff bar should be ensuring that my experts' opinions get in, that they overcome a 702 challenge, right? But you might see that the defense side has not done. Um, what they need to do. And you may be able to get partial summary judgment on the liability part of the case or on the damages part of the case. We haven't really talked a lot about damages here, but um, you know, we talked more, our thinking has been more on, our discussion here has been more on the liability, but both sides should be, should be considered. But again, I just have this, we have this slide here because we want to emphasize that it, you know, not only are you working to ensure that your your expert gets to testify to their opinions at trial, but you should also be thinking strategically, can I get this case knocked out? Can I get part of the other side's case knocked out on the basis of their opinions? And your thought process on this of getting to a Daubert motion should be from the very beginning. What can I do to survive a Daubert challenge? And what can I do to you know, uh, preclude someone else's expert? And yeah, it's going to impact yeah, what we do during the inspections, you know, what we do with the testing, how we conduct um, and examine and defend and challenge the expert during during depositions. Yeah, all, all excellent points. And, and certainly don't forget to make the linkage between your Daubert motion and the summary judgment motion. Don't just simply bring a Daubert motion as, as a glorified motion and eliminate. Make sure you develop and include a specific argument that summary judgment must be entered if your Daubert motion is granted. You want to put that right in front of the court. Don't neglect to link the two because that could very well win the case. But sometimes you can just bring them in and kind of forget, neglect to link the arguments. And all these points are very, very important. You know, I can tell you in, in the case that that Justin and I prevailed, the expert on the other side neglected to do certain things like conducting tests. And, and on appeal, the circuit court found that while the expert for the other side, while they certainly opined that the motorcycle issue had defects, that expert did not conduct tests, did not make calculations, did not replicate the accident where we had done all those things. And, and there, the, that court specifically said the Supreme Court has listed a set of guideposts to inform the admissibility inquiry, including whether an expert's method has been tested, subject to peer review or assigned an error rate. So very important that they do that because the court seized upon that and said, we, we don't have this, this indicia that we need. And in fact, the court there said that expert supplied no test results of his own, peer reviewed publications, potential rates of error, or other grounds with which to assess his opinion. Absent such hallmarks of reliability, 
expert testimony can easily but improperly delve into nothing more than proclaiming an opinion is true because I say so. And yeah, and uh, and bringing it full circle, those the lower court decisions and lower court decision and the, the appeals court decision um, pointed back pointed to. 702 in the amendment in the amendment proposed amendments to 702 and and in particular noted that the 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 role the role of the court as gatekeeper and with the amendments to 702 there's just that stronger emphasis right on the gatekeeper role the amendment to 702 is basically saying look courts some of you have um fail to exercise your 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 duty as gatekeeper of expert evidence. You know, the rule the rule specifically says you need to exercise that gatekeeper and that and that needs to be kept in mind when we prepare our cases and we defend our cases, particularly products cases where expert evidence is vital. That's right. And, and another thing to keep in mind while while typically you're going to have a Daubert hearing in front of a court to assess these, these filings and to assess the admissibility of an expert's testimony, you may not in all cases. I mean, courts do not necessarily have to conduct, even if they're requested, federal courts do not necessarily have to conduct Daubert hearings if it's clear on the face of the submissions how the court's going to make that determination. So you don't rely on, well, later on I get a Daubert hearing. Make sure what you need to say is set forth in your papers clearly, concisely, and you don't leave it for a potential later trying to raise it in front of the court at a Daubert hearing, kind of a, hey, I'm going to surprise the court and the other side with this, including your papers. Don't assume the court's going to grant you a Daubert hearing. Yeah, in fact, I've, I think in 15 years of practice, I've had one Daubert hearing. Yeah. Almost every Daubert in Lonergan motion has been decided on, on the papers. Um, so questions. I'm going to, un. Uh, let me just... So, so you know, this is my contact, Jackie's and Dave's contact information um, or email address. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. I'm going to unshare my screen. And if we have any questions, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to answer them the best we, we can. I don't see that there are any questions. <laughs> they're, they're still basking in the glow of everything you said, Justin. <laughs> so that's why. Perhaps they will later on. Luckily, they have the contact information. We're happy to answer questions even after this presentation today. So I guess, oh, hi, Devin. Hello. Um, it sounds like everything was wrapping up. So I just wanted to come on and say thank you so much to our panel for speaking today. And thank you to our audience for joining us this afternoon. Um, certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you very much.